Welcome to OncoFarm. I am your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice here at the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy, which supports this podcast. Today, oh, I have a lot to talk about. Um, last, uh, this past week in ESMO, the European Society of Medical Oncology had a big meeting, and so a whole bunch of stuff came out. If you looked in the table of contents for the most recent recent issue of the New England Journal of Medicine, you're going to see what I'm talking about. So uh, what I usually do for the pod is I will um, have like a legal paddle, take some notes of, of what I want to talk about. Uh, today I have 11 um, studies <laughs> stapled uh, on my desk with notes randomly on them trying to get through them. So basically I'm lowering your expectations for the quality of this podcast. Before we start, having said that, Let's get into it. So the first thing I want to talk about is the FLORA study. This was a phase three study that was actually, uh, the interim analysis was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in, I think, January of 2018. This compared first-line Ocimertinib to either erlotinib or gefitinib in EGFR-mutated non-small cell lung cancer. What was presented uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine over a year ago was PFS data, and the overall survival rate was 25% maturity. So the the, the overall survival benefit was shown presented at ESMO. Now, um, this has not been published. So I haven't had a chance to review all that, but um, Vinay Prasad, who does Plenary Session Podcast, which is the only podcast that this podcast follows on Twitter for whatever that's worth, did a really nice job breaking down this study. Um, one of the big points he mentioned was that MRI at baseline was not mandated, um, so patients could have had CNS meds that were undiagnosed and then enrolled into a study of Ocimertinib versus Erlotinib and Gefitinib. Now, this makes a, uh, a difference from an Oncofarm standpoint with the CNS penetration of these EGFR uh, TKIs because if patients have CNS disease and you don't look for it, you're not going to find it. If you don't find it, you can't irradiate it, so you're probably going to have CNS progression faster if you're randomized to an arm that does not have a drug that penetrates the CNS. So Ocimertinib has pretty good CNS penetration. Afatinib, not quite as good as Ocimertinib. And then Erlotinib and Gefitinib don't have a ton of CNS penetration. Um, so, for, you know, that's that's a weakness of the study. Um, it's not clear in the study necessarily the way it, it, it is written. The original publication of how many patients actually had uh, CNS mets and how many of them potentially had CNS mets that went untreated. Uh, so that's also a, a big problem. And then, you know, another big problem, uh, a lot of a lot of physicians might argue that uh, Ocimertinib does have these benefits. Like it has better CNS penetration. It is more uh, specific for mutated EGFR compared to wild type wild type EGFR, which should spare the patient some toxicity. Um, so there are some, you know, some natural advantages from Ocimertinib, and it does have activity against the T790M mutation that none of the other EGFR TKIs do. So because of that, and since that mutation is a common cause of resistance or failure with Erlotinib, Afatinib, etc., some people have argued you should reserve Ocimertinib for the second line because once you get that T790M mutation with Erlotinib, then you can go on to Ocimertinib. Whereas if you do Ocimertinib first line, you might not be able to expect any reasonable benefit from an earlier generation TKI in the second line setting if you do OC first. So all of those things are fair. So what you would really like to see is a study that was Ocimertinib followed by whatever the next line therapy you would do is chemotherapy, immunotherapy, some other TKI and then say erlotinib, gefitinib, and then you'd like 
all of those patients to then receive OC Mertinib in a second line setting. And from my math, from the original publication, it looks like only 17% of patients in the Erlotinib Gifitinib got OC Mertinib in the second line setting. Now, some of that may have been immature. They may not have progressed yet on Erlotinib Gifitinib. So again, really want to see the full results of that to see what is the, the crossover rate to OC Mertinib. The, the higher it is, I think the fair comparison that we get, uh, despite the inherent limitations of the, of the study. Um, so you, you know, you'd want to see that. You'd also want to see what percentage of patients um, who progress on Erlotinib Gifitinib, how many of them do have a T790M mutation, and what are the resistance patterns between these two groups? Another thing to point out here from an Oncopharm standpoint is OC Mertinib has good absorption in an acidic or basic environment. So there is no drug interaction with PPIs or H2 receptor antagonists that we know of with OC Mertinib. However, that's not the case for Gefitinib and Erlotinib, whereas the absorption is reduced with PPIs based on our uh, information from package insert. The protocol, which you can find it on the New England Journal of Medicine website from the company, as a nice appendix about drugs that interact with OC Mertinib and drugs to avoid, uh, you know, inhibitors and inducers of certain cytokines. What it doesn't talk about is PPIs or H2 blockers and now the potential interaction of acid suppressive therapy on Erlotinib or Gefitinib. So as an oncology pharmacist, I think it would be really important to, to have that in your baseline demographics of patients on PPIs or H2 blockers or to at least put it in your protocol since that would be best practice. So my take home from this Erlotinib was, or, or not Erlotinib, uh, OC Mertinib was already kind of the favored TKI in the eyes of the guideline writers because of that PFS benefit. Now there's OS benefit, although with the caveats that have been pointed out. Um, I don't think it's, I, I do think it's reasonable to do a Fatinib, Erlotinib, et cetera, first line and then OC Mertinib second line. Uh, I, I don't know that the guideline writers would agree with that, but I don't think the evidence is conclusive that you absolutely would have to use OC Mertinib first line, uh, given its cost and given all these other, uh, you know, uh, you know, weaknesses uh, of this study. All right, so that's Flora, F L A U R A. Sticking with lung cancer, since it affects, you know, it's the most common malignancy uh, in in this country. Uh, moving on to this was actually um, a study that was published a, a little bit earlier online, but just came into my uh, this is Keynote 1, or Keynote 001. So this is Pembrolizumab, the five-year overall survival data in non-small cell lung cancer, the very first Pembro in people studied. Now, you, listeners of this pod will know I talked about the analogous study of this for nivolumab um, a while back. This is maybe about a year ago. And what's interesting here is the nivolumab study, this was um, the very first nivolumab study, uh, non-small cell lung cancer, for patients who had previously been uh, you know, treated, the five-year overall survival rate was 16%, okay? Pretty good, and I talked about how good that was because that's the five-year overall survival rate for all lung cancers prior to the TKI and immunotherapy era. So to get 15% in metastatic disease was quite a benefit. Well, here we have the same, basically the same study with pembrolizumab, five-year overall survival data, and for patients who had already received treatment, the overall survival with pembro was 15.5%, which is exactly the same as the nivolumab. Now, the number is actually 23.2% five-year overall survival for people who got Pembro up front that were treatment naive. But what I think is interesting in this that I want to point out is that we have five-year overall survival in the second line or greater or longer setting of immunotherapy, Nivo or Pembro. That's 15% of both arms, which suggests that perhaps one day down the road, we might be able to have uh, to limit you know our formularies to just a uh, 
an immunotherapy agent the way that we often do with ACE inhibitors these days and beta blockers and things of that nature. Sticking with immunotherapy and lung cancer, going to the next uh, publication that was in uh, the New England Journal of Medicine this week, and this is Nivolumab plus IPI in advanced non-small cell lung cancer. Now, this is the full publication of an earlier study. This is Checkmate 227, and you, all the checkmates sound the same after a while, but the first publication of Checkmate 227 looked at tumor mutation burden, and I think it was more than 10 mega base pairs uh, of tumor mutation burden, there was a, a, a large progression-free survival benefit uh, of, nivi, of nivolumab plus IPI. So this is the full publication uh, of that result. So these are patients randomized to either nevo plus IPI, nevo alone, or chemotherapy. And what we see here is, uh, as I look at my notes, skipping ahead, so what we see here is a two-year overall survival and these are patients with a pd one of more than 1%, of 40% with uh, the combo immunotherapy arm compared to 30% with chemo, 33% with chemo. So, you know, a statistically significant difference. One of the things that's, you know, the question we would want to ask really is Nevo plus it be better than Nevo plus chemo because probably not a lot of patients with metastatic non-small cell lung cancer that have some pd one expression are just getting chemo. So a little bit uh, of an artifact from, uh, from the past here. And if you look at the overall population, a two-year overall survival is 40% versus 30%, so pretty sizable, uh, pretty sizable difference. That difference was even in patients who had a pdl one inspection of less than 1%, two-year OS of 40% versus 23%. But uh, I think one of the take-home points from this study is everyone got real excited, and I talked about it on this podcast, is tumor mutation burden. Maybe this is how we predict benefit with immunotherapy. Well, that progression-free, that big progression-free survival difference we had um, with uh, combination immunotherapy based on tumor mutation burden was not seen with regards to overall survival. Once again, underscoring the importance of patient-oriented endpoints like overall survival as opposed to surrogate endpoints like progression-free survival. All right, enough lung cancer, but let's keep talking about immunotherapy because that's that's where it's at these days. So the this next paper is five-year survival with combined nivolumab and ipilimab in advanced melanoma. This is patients who have now a median follow-up of 60 months, five years. So really, really groundbreaking uh, study. So here are the five-year sur- overall survival rates in metastatic melanoma, a disease that historically had a dismal prognosis. So five-year overall survival, combination nevo-ipi, 52% of people alive five years later. Single-agent nevo, 44%. And then single-agent ipilimumab, 26%. Um, which is pretty, you know, pretty, pretty astounding. That 52% with combination immunotherapy versus 44% with single-agent nevo is not statistically significant, but they both are superior to single-agent ipilimumab. Now, if you look at the progression-free survival curve, you see they really start to flatten out between two and three years. And so their PFS rates here, so this is alive without progression, 36% with combo, 26% with nevo, and 8% with ipi. And those curves are pretty, pretty flat, asking the question, you know, are we able to cure 33% or so of patients with metastatic melanoma, which, which would be remarkable uh, if that would be true. So this is certainly... Um, you know, we talk about we'd like to see longer follow-up, so it's great to see these these five-year overall survival, these landmark analysis, these early immunotherapy studies uh, demonstrate that we really are moving the needle and showing longer progression. Okay, 
now we're going to move on to the uh, the Gynoc realm and talk about two ovarian cancer studies published in the New England Journal of Medicine, also presented at ESMO, uh, is my understanding. Uh, this is, let's see, so we have a Viliparib and first-line chemo within maintenance of Viliparib, and then Niraparib in basically the same patient population. A couple differences in the Viliparib study, uh, which uh, is called the Velia study. They got uh, Viliparib plus chemo and then maintenance Viliparib, platinum-based chemo um, for their ovarian cancer. In the Niraparib study, they didn't get Niraparib with chemo, only as maintenance. And we already have good data about Olaparib, another PARP inhibitor, as maintenance, but in those who are BRCA mutated after response to first-line chemo. So the Viliparib study uh, has patients getting chemo and then continuing Viliparib regardless of whether or not they responded to chemo or not. This is a big difference. So the Niraparib study, you only got Niraparib maintenance if you had a response to chemo. So you're kind of, the Niraparib folks already have shown uh, a little better disease or more treatable disease because they only got Niraparib if they had a response uh, to treatment. Uh, but the general theme for both of these publications is PARP inhibitors are most beneficial to patients who have um, BRCA mutations, either germline, blame mom and dad, somatic, blame your environment, or homologous repair deficits, uh, or basically DNA repair, um, uh, the, the inability to repair DNA damage. Uh, PARP inhibitors are most effective in those patients. Uh, the Niraparib study seemed to have more benefit than the Liparib, or uh, relative to placebo, in those patients who had homologous repair proficient. Uh, and they used the same assay to detect that in both tests, but that could be an artifact of the folks getting Niraparib already being chemosensitive. Um, but really, these, are, these, these two studies support what we've already seen with the Laparib in maintenance, especially in BRCA-mutated patients. Uh, the next uh, paper presented at ESMO and published in the New England Journal of Medicine was Beacon. Now, this is uh, looking at BRAV V600E mutated colorectal cancer. Now, colon cancer is one of the top four um, malignancies in, in our nation. Um, numbers of 5 to 10, maybe 20%, but probably 10% of patients ha uh, with colon cancer have the BRAV V600E mutation. Now, that's a much lower percentage than we see in metastatic melanoma, where it's maybe 50% of patients have BRAV mutated uh, um, metastatic melanoma, only maybe 10%. And in uh, colorectal cancer, that B, BRAF V600E mutation has a poorer prognosis than if you were wild-type BRAF, and it leads to constitutive or upregulation of the EGFR pathway. Uh, so this study is looking at adding to cetuximab an EGFR monoclonal antibody, encorafenib, which is a once-a-day drug, and benimetinib, which is a twice-a-day drug. So it's dual block, so it's BRAF, MEK, and EGFR blockade. So it's blocking three different checkpoints or stopping points uh, in the signal transduction cascade. And this is compared to a control group that was basically physician's choice, um, that was either irentican or cetuximab or fulfuri plus cetuximab. And a lot of these folks probably already had irentican because it was all second or third line patients. So um, many of them probably already had irritation, so not, not the fairest uh, control arm, uh, no use of BEV. I know people have concerns about using oxaloplatins and tuximab together, and maybe uh, that combination is not as beneficial as you would think, but um, it, you know, in the long run, uh, it's an interesting concept, but this is, is, is probably not the best study. You know, uh, half the patients had, in this study had prior irritation use, 
and if they were on the control and they got randomized, they, they, they got more iron and tecan, which seems like a recipe for failure. So hard to read anything from this study other than the interesting concept, and it's something you might start to see in practice is an EGFR monoclonal antibody with a BRAF or MEK inhibitor added onto it. The next study is the CARD study. So this is cabazitaxel versus abiraterone or enzalutamide in metastatic prostate cancer. Um, this is kind of like the cabazitaxel folks saying, hey, remember us? Um, so historically, uh, the, the treatment of metastatic prostate cancer, once it was hormone refractory, you had docetaxel and then not much else. And then you were using like cutoconazole and prednisone, you're using secondary hormonal manipulations. Um, not that great. And then in a relatively short period of time, we got cabazitaxel, post-docetaxel. Uh, we got Cypilus-LT, which no one really uses and probably doesn't work. Uh, then we got abiraterone and enzalutamide post-docetaxel. And then we studied abiraterone and enzalutamide pre-docetaxel. And then we studied docetaxel with um, hormonal therapy up front. So a lot of changes in prostate cancer. And the whole time, the biggest thing that happened with cabazitaxel is in the U.S., we lowered the dose. So the labeled dose in Europe and originally in the U.S. was 25 milligrams per meter squared. And cabazitaxel is a taxane that has activity in patients who have resistance or have failed docetaxel, okay? So it's not a bad drug, but very myelosuppressive. And because of that, some subsequent studies suggested that 20 milligrams per meter squared was non-inferior to 25 milligrams per meter squared in this patient population, but less toxic. So the U.S., lowered their labeled dose to 20 milligrams per meter squared. In Europe, it's still 25 milligrams per meter squared, which is the dose used in this study. And what they did in this study is they took patients who had already received docetaxel and either enzalutamide or abiraterone and said, okay, I know, you don't want to use chemo, but hear us out. You've already failed enzalutamide or abiraterone. Let's randomize patients to cabazitaxel or one of the other uh, hormonal agents. And so there was a, a nice little benefit here with regards to progression-free survival with cabazitaxel, median PFS eight months compared to 3.7 months, favoring cabazitaxel over the other androgen signaling target inhibitor. Um, and that was statistically significant with regards to overall survival. You see about a two and a half month median improvement in overall survival, 13.6 months with cabazitaxel versus 11 uh, in the control arm hazard ratio of 0.64. So modest benefit here for capacitaxel. So maybe let's not forget about capacitaxel, but if you do use it in these patients, everyone in this study got prophylactic GCSF, and they did get 25 milligrams per meter squared, not 20. Uh, the next couple things I want to talk about were not from ESMO, but this is Monarch 2 that was published in JAMA uh, Oncology, which is a bemacyclib plus full vestrant in uh, metastatic breast cancer, hormone receptor positive, HER2 negative. Uh, so bemacyclib plus, plus full vestrant versus just full vestrant alone. I won't get too much into the details of this, but I will say the results of this study very much mirror what we saw with ribocyclib. Similar patient population, both pre- and postmenopausal patients, uh, and, and the Kaplan-Meier curves uh, look pretty similar in that they are identical for a while between the, the CDK4-6 inhibitor and hormonal therapy, and they start to separate later on, suggesting maybe um, you don't need to start both at the same time, although you do see this overall survival benefit demonstrated now with bemacyclib, as we saw with, uh, with ribocyclib as well. 
The last thing I'll talk about was something I alluded to a couple weeks ago, which was pharmacogenomics. Is it ready for prime time? And I mentioned an ongoing study looking at using a pharmacogenomics um, platform to see a, basically a feasibility test. And I think I mentioned that this was being done in, uh, in Duluth, Minnesota. Well, this was a publication out of uh, Iowa City, University of Iowa basically looking at the feasibility of integrating uh, this one-ohm pharmacogenomics platform. And in 155 patients, surprise, it was feasible. Now, um, this was 155 patients, and uh, the authors say that in most patients, that the results were back within three to five days. Now, this study was funded with a grant, basically uh, what looks like allowing everyone um, access to one or is paid by the study. Uh, so I don't know that you can really call that feasible because you'd have to deal with getting insurance companies to pay for this test. But some interesting things of note. So there's the University of Iowa. Uh, so take that a very Midwestern patient population. Um, but of these 155 patients, um, over half had a UGT1A1 uh, variant. Uh, almost 48% had a, had a, were heterozygous for the STAR28 allele. Uh, and there were... Uh, Let's see, t almost 10% were homozygous for STAR28, STAR28. There were also a couple DPD deficiencies that were found, which would have increased these patients' risk of toxicity for 5-FE or capecitabine. So, uh, again, we're going to see more and more of this going forward. So that is what I have to do, and um, I don't know about you, but uh, I'm really happy I got that done in, in about 20 minutes. So thank you for listening once again. Uh, feel free to follow me on Twitter. Uh, at Farm Deetnib. Follow the podcast on Twitter and Insta at OncoFarmPod. Uh, give us a good rating review in the iTunes store where you can listen to us on your Apple devices, Google Play for Android folks, uh, on St Stitcher, SoundCloud, and almost everywhere you would listen to pod podcasts. You can find this podcast. Uh, and as always, if you have ideas, uh, you know, uh, get in touch with me. Tell me what you'd like to hear more about. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Thank you.